you end up just talking for like hours and hours about black holes and where's the center and of the extract universe. that what which is bogus and that which is not doesn't seem to exist. Think of objects not as single things, but as being made up of many constituents. Bill Nye made me hate science. Well, you're out at the pub and someone says, "Hey, what? Uh, so, what do you do?" And I'm like, "Hey, well, I'm an astrophysicist." Hey, everybody, you are on Natural Reaction here on Z Digital. We're here for another week. I'm Jacinta. We're in the studio with Izzy. Hi. And Nadia. Hello. And we also have a special guest, which is exceptionally exciting. We've got Professor Daniel um, Otis Barrientos. I'm sorry if I ruined that. <laughs> um, he's an associate professor in the School of Biomedical Sciences at UQ. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. We're really excited to get into your work, which, I mean, to be fair, I did look into before the show, but I'm still not 100% sure I understand properly. Well, it's a really interesting field. Well, I'll let Daniel talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> Can you really quickly explain what you do? Right. So um, <clears throat> there are two ways of perhaps describing my work. On one hand, we can think of um, we work on Darwin's problem. When Darwin basically went all over the world... Uh, collecting specimens of different organisms from plants to marine organisms to all sort of animals, terrestrial, and went to the Galapagos, he realized that there's enormous diversity and he suggested that perhaps um, natural forces were responsible for that diversity. So that mystery of mysteries that Darwin one time basically called the origin of new species is basically what we do in my lab. Just a just a tiny little thing there. Yeah. Nothing to worry about <laughs> yeah, too much. It's called evolution. You might have heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> Not a big deal at all. So we're going to talk more about that in a couple of sections. Segments. So, yeah, segments. We've got a while yet. Um, but before that, Nadia, tell me what we're talking about. I thought I was going to do another snub scientist today, and I wanted to chat about Cecilia Payne. She is responsible for essentially identifying what the stars are made of. I can't wait to hear why she was snubbed. <laughs> it's gonna be, I don't know why you're excited for that part. Well, no, it's always terrible. You're like, oh, she sounds amazing. And then it just... Yeah. 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 Sad Izzy, very quickly. Oh, what are you me? talking about? I'm talking about how uh, there seems to be some sort of inherited memory in, cell, in, bi- in microbes in a biofilm. Ooh. And we'll talk about what a biofilm is when we get to that. I think I think the memory part's the cooler part. Yeah, though, the memory right? part is the cooler part. <laughs> and then I don't have anything to talk about. You're going to be talking about jazzy whales, I've heard. Potentially. Hear some jazzy whale songs. Yeah, I mean, for the, to end the show, we're going to get to listen to whale songs, which sounds pretty amazing. Always is. But you're going to have to wait. Um, so, Nadia, I think we have a snub scientist. Yes, so today we're going to be talking about Cecilia Payne, an astrophysicist who proposed an explanation for the composition of the stars. So she basically just, well, determined what the stars are actually made of. Definitely not a big deal again. (laughs) Nah. Nah. Tiny thing. So what are stars made of? Stuff. Star stuff? Star star, stuff, yeah. (laughs) Star stuff. Um, Mostly hydrogen and helium. Yeah. I was going to say, like, elements, right? Yeah. (laughs) So um, Cecilia Helena Payne was born in Wendover, England in 1900. She attended St. Paul's Girls School, and in 1919, she won a scholarship to Newham College, which was a woman-only constituent college of the University of Cambridge. She went there and studied botany, physics, and chemistry. Cecilia's interest in astronomy developed after she attended a lecture by the famous astronomer Arthur Eddington, who described his expedition to the island of Principe in the Gulf of Guinea to observe and photograph the stars near a solar eclipse as a test of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Now, after that lecture, Cecilia's mind was 
pretty much blown and she was, <laughs> shall we say, shook. So, <laughs> shook. Using a... Some colloquial language. <laughs> Using colloquial language on 1900s, like, ladies. Like, yeah. Well, um, she attended a lecture and she stated that the result was a complete transformation of my world picture. My world had been so shaken that I experienced something like a nervous breakdown. Oh, my God. That's I, amazing. I know. I would love to attend a lecture like that that just yeah, made imagine. me have a nervous breakdown. Also, what a compliment to the lecturer. Like, oh, this lecture was so good, it literally tore down... My fundamental perceptions of the universe, and I needed a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Her mind was literally blown. Cecilia uh, went on to complete her studies, but was not awarded a degree because of her sex, since Cambridge did not grant degrees to women until 1948. She realized that her only career option in the UK was to become a teacher, so she looked for grants that would enable her to move to the United States. She left England in 1923 after receiving a fellowship for Radcliffe College as part of a graduate program in astronomy, which was uh, to encourage women to study at the observatory. Now, Radcliffe College, which is now known as Harvard College Observatory, was one of the only academic institutes that um, that accepted female students in the discipline of physics at the time. It was here where she achieved her greatest success and flourished as an astronomer. Cecilia was persuaded by her supervisor, Harlow Shapley, to write a doctoral dissertation. And in just two years, she became the first person to earn a PhD from Radcliffe College with what's been called the most brilliant PhD thesis ever written in astronomy. The first person or the first female? First person. Whoa. Damn. That's pretty impressive. Like Radcliffe College. Radcliffe College, which is now known as um, Harvard College Observatory. Ah. Yeah, so part of Harvard. And at 25 years old, she laid the groundwork for basically everything we know about the stars. And for the first time, she corrected our assumption that the whole universe shares the Earth's elemental makeup. Before Cecilia, everyone assumed that the stars were made of basically the same 100 elements or so found on Earth. It stood to reason at the time that the stuff we know here must be the same stuff that's out there. In her thesis, she managed to explain what the stars and the sun are actually made of she was able to accurately relate the spectral classes of the stars to their actual temperatures by applying the ionization theory developed by Indian physicist Meghnad uh, Meghnad Saha. There's a name. You did good. (laughs) She used spectrography, which is a tool that can match elements to a particular absorption wavelength. She was able to show that variations in the stellar absorption patterns was due to differing amounts of ionization, so the different types of ions of single elements, and not due to different amounts of elements themselves. And to expand upon this, this is still like a technique we use now for astrophysics and looking observing stars and deciding their composition. You ever hear if you ever hear something like, "Oh, they found a star that has X whatever hydrogen," like that—that's how they do it. You can look at this still the same technique that goes back to her. Yeah, she uh, looking at these spectrographs, so essentially these pictures of what um, the elements are. Yeah. Also, notable alumni of Radcliffe College are Helen Keller and Margaret Atwood. Oh. Yeah. There we go. Is there, like, was there, do- there but it was a it's co-ed a, thing, though. There uh, was... Uh, it, it, nowadays, it's a women's liberal arts college. I don't know oh, okay. about uh, how it started or anything. Hmm. But Interesting. Well, um, I'm pretty sure it was co-ed back then because they had the fellowship to encourage women participants. Yeah. So. Um. I assume it probably, it might have become a women's college when it joined Harvard, but I wouldn't know for certain. Potentially. Mm. Anyways, Cecilia found that silicon, carbon, and other common metals seen in the sun's spectrum 
were present in about the same relative amounts as on the Earth, which was in agreement with the accepted belief of the time. However, she found that helium and particularly hydrogen were vastly more abundant. And for hydrogen, this was by a factor of about one million times more. <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> a little bit. A couple of orders of magnitude is fine. Mm. <laughs> Basically, her thesis established that hydrogen was the overwhelming constituent of the stars and the most abundant element in the universe. When it came time to having her thesis reviewed, the astronomer Henry Norris Russell persuaded Cecilia not to make the conclusion that the composition of the sun was mostly made out of hydrogen and therefore different from that of the Earth, since this contradicted the accepted theory of the time. Oh, no. Cecilia consequently described the result in her thesis as spurious, which essentially invalidated her own findings. Four years later, Henry Norris Russell realized that Cecilia was actually correct after he came to the same conclusion independently by using different methods. He then went on to publish his findings in 1929. In his paper, he did acknowledge Cecilia's work and discovery, but he was and is still often credited for the conclusions that they both reached. Excuse me while I flip a table. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's rough. It is rough. Um, And after her doctorate, Cecilia decided to stay on at Harvard. At first, she had no official position since advancement to a professorship was denied to women. So she spent 11 years in a technical assistant position. At one point, she even considered leaving Harvard because of her low status and salary. But despite all of this, she continued to study the SARS of high luminosity to better understand the structure of the Milky Way. Throughout her career, Cecilia made over 1,250,000 observations relating to variable stars. One million? Over one million observations. And in the process, published several (laughs) books on the topic. Her observations and analysis of variable stars laid the basis for all subsequent work on them, and in the process provided a solid, solid foundation for future astronomical observations. In 1938, Cecilia's hard work and determination paid off. She was given the title of astronomer, and she was elected a fellow of the Ac- Academic Academy of Arts and Science. Jacinta just, I, yeah. I'm defeated. The, we need the to- expression that she had when I said that she was given the title of astronomer was too good. It's just, it's just, it's just every time, every time. It's just like these poor women like deserve so much more than what they were given. They, they did. Um, in 1956, she did um, achieve full professorship. Yay! She was the first woman to be promoted to full professor from within the faculty. What year was that? 1958. So she was 58 at the time. Sorry, 56. So, yeah, nearly 60. She then went on to become the first woman to head a department at Harvard. She dedicated her life to research and retired from active teaching in 1966 and was subsequently appointed Emeritus Professor of Harvard. She continued her research as a member of the staff at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory and edited the journals and books published by Harvard Observatory for over 20 years. And I mean, Cecilia was a pioneering astrophysicist and probably the most eminent woman astronomer of all time. And the trail she blazed into the largely male-dominated scientific community was an inspiration to many. And despite having been snubbed, when it came to her thesis and her original findings. She did achieve a lot of accolade later in life, and she is being honoured now. Yeah, I'm surprised I didn't know about her. Yeah. I've got to ask, um, if we didn't know that the stars were made up so much of hydrogen, did they know that, like, the nuclear physics of of how stars work? I was thinking the same. It seems that because of her, that line of research was also possible then. Yeah, because... About these burning... Um, massive objects out in space. Yeah, because like for listeners at home, if you don't know, the the sun is not like a ball of fire in the traditional sense. It's 
a nuclear inferno where in the very center of it, two hydrogen atoms, well, sorry, two hydrogen. Only two. Yeah. <laughs> get slammed together to make a helium. And that's where you get helium from. Think of like a hydrogen mosh pit. Yeah. It's a hydrogen mosh pit. <laughs> yes. And then when the mosh pit gets too crowded, two of people get smashed into one bigger person. <laughs> it gets bloody. Uh, but that's how we have all elements, basically, that we know that aren't hydrogen, is that in stars, they get smashed together and then distributed throughout the universe in well, supernova. This is why Cecilia's work is so important because mm. it literally laid the, the groundwork and the foundation for all astrophysics afterwards. Yeah. So it's such a significant contribution and obviously this finding would have occurred later at on. At some point. At some point. Like science always finds a way of finding out what's happening out there. But Cecilia was the one to actually find this first and foremost and definitely deserves the recognition that she didn't get back then. Mm. 100%. Amazing. There we go. Yeah. Cecilia Another Payton. scientist again. Just Maybe. making us sad. On, uh, <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm surpri- even just actually surprised at how recent that discovery was, to be honest. Because like, it seems like the sun is a nuclear phenomenon. It seems like it's really common, like it's really like, you know, fundamental to how much of science we know. It's still really far away, though. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, no, it, I, didn't, I just sort of assumed it was a bit of an earlier discovery because... Like how the suns work is how we explain how elements get around the universe that aren't hydrogen and therefore like how things like Earth <laughs> can be formed. I don't know. It's just amazing to me. It's but. hard yeah. to forget that like the, so many scientific discoveries and advancements have only happened in the last hundred years. Mm. It's it's crazy to think that. I mean, in 1925, that's not that long ago. That's not even a hundred years ago. Not even. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like one of, that, one of those expressions. Like if you look at how long it took humans to go from understanding that steam steam as a a thing that occurs to harnessing steam power it took a couple it took about two centuries i think yeah there was some stuff in the middle and there the, though yeah like. no, i know but then it took but the differences between it took to get into space is only about 60 years oh yeah so it's like that seems like a huge that is a huge jump like it, it, it just is it's like it's basically exponential growth yeah. in like discovery and technology and all of those things mm. You're Natural Reaction here on Z Digital, and we're in the studio with Professor Daniel Ortiz Barrientos. You got it. I'm, I'm nearly there. And okay, I said before that he's from the School of Biomedical Sciences, which is completely wrong. He's actually an associate professor in the School of Biological Sciences, which maybe doesn't make a big deal to anyone but me, but um, <laughs> they're very different. Yeah, I, I cared a lot. So, um, Daniel, can you tell me a little bit about what you do in the lab? Right. So, um, uh, my research group is um, different in the sense that we actually do many things simultaneously in in our research. So, some people characterize us as, as ecologists, perhaps. Other people characterize our job as molecular geneticists. And but how would you characterize your job? Right, as evolutionary geneticists. Evolutionary geneticists, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good. <laughs> because we do integrate all of these approaches mostly because our research is driven by questions. And we are not uh, timid or shy at trying to answer the question, whatever it takes. Which means that we are always in this tension between knowing a, a little bit about something, <laughs> but most of the time not knowing anything about most of it, <laughs> yes. right? But uh, it's great because uh, that brings a lot of excitement to everyone in the lab. So an evolutionary geneticist, uh, what, would you say, so what, what would you say falls under the purview of the field of an evolutionary geneticist? Right, so I think that everything that we want to 
um, explain how originates on Earth via natural processes of evolution is within the domain of evolutionary genetics with the particular specification that we're interested in how genetic information contributes to the origin of these processes in nature. Okay. Yeah, so, and this is something that I really find interesting about your work in particular, is that you're dealing mostly with populations and like how the gen- the genetic information of a whole population changes over time. Is that, would you think that, is that fair to say? That's correct, yeah. yeah. So we're very used to thinking in uh, individuals. our individuals because, I mean, we are individuals, we see individuals and we live and die. But uh, we carry genes that we passed on to um, the other generations, right? Yeah. So we have tools and concepts and ideas to actually help us understand how these myriad of mm, pieces of DNA travel through time. And actually, I'm going to put some cards on the table a little bit here. Uh, I was in one of uh, Daniel's lect- uh, courses, one of his lectures, uh, for a year, and it was one of the best courses I've had for a long, long, long time, and I enjoyed the <laughs> hell out of it. Thanks, Susie. Uh, yeah. But one thing that I think, that one of the reasons I particularly enjoyed it is that it's sort of, you can look at, instead of thinking purely about how organisms reproduce, you can think of it about how bits of DNA inside organisms reproduce and spread, because I think that was one of the interesting things about this evolutionary genetics perspective, is that, yeah, not not necessarily it's about an organism reproducing, but about individual bits of DNA, how they all string together to form sort of a super bit of DNA, which is your genome, and how that all competes to reproduce, which I think is fascinating. Izzy has definitely spoken about this before. He's like, yeah. <laughs> but I, li- I like that idea actually as well. It's like the self, it's the DNA trying to get itself re um, Reprodu- re- re- yeah, yeah, like reproduces. Keeps going. It's makes a more copies of itself. Gene. It's a selfish gene. Oh, yeah, to that's quote Richard really, Dawkins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, nevertheless it's important to uh, note that the the biology of the organism mm. is truly what matters ultimately. Oh, yes, of course. So every generation, <laughs> the color of the feathers of a bird or like the sound of a frog uh, on a, in a pond or the way uh, birds migrate from one place to the other. I mean, those aspects of biology that we're fascinated by is ultimately what we need to understand. It's just that we have tools to track the consequences of that biology over time. Yes. And they have become really sophisticated and through that we have understood from how we came about as humans to how tropical forests are put together, etc. Okay, and that's a good, that's a interesting path to go down. What kind of tools do you use to understand these things? Correct. So mm, we we think in of our research in, in several terms. On one hand, we think of um, the trait. So you can think perhaps, well, uh, the color of the eyes, right? Or as I mentioned before, the color of a feather, but also could be how tall a plant is. And uh, so the traits are very important to us. So we measure a lot of traits, both in the field, in the natural conditions where organisms live, but also in control conditions where we monitor the temperature and the humidity, where we're doing our experiments. And then we also measure those traits under those conditions. So that's like the most basic first step that we take. So one thing that um, I was looking at when we were looking at your research is you work on a particular species or a 
a group of species of flowers. Mm-hmm. So what can you tell, what, what are you trying to find from, from those flowers? Sure. So <coughs> continuing with the idea of the traits, I mean, these plants have some very cool traits. Uh, I mean, plants are simpler perhaps than animals in some respects, but also equally complex from different angles. And uh, one of the things that we've been focusing on is on the growth habit of these plants. Uh, The plant being uh, the sensulator? Yeah, so there is this um, group of plants in the world from a family called Asteraceae, which is like the family of daisies, right? And within um, uh, daisies, there are things like sunflowers, right? But there are many other types of daisies uh, out there from other types of families. And I work in one family that contains this uh, uh, genus called Senecio. And uh, Senecio uh, has to do the name as if it suggests itself like with age, old age, senescence, Senecio. And uh, Lotus, which is the original denomination for this plant, uh, has to do with um, uh, white hair. And it's the reason for this is that when you grow these plants, they look, uh, uh, the flowers, once they produce fruit, etc., they look like little dandelions. So they look like as if they were old people with white hair. Oh, okay. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? And, uh, of course, I mean, uh, there are many types of, like, uh, taxonomic species uh, within the complex. And uh, within that complex, we are interested in particular in one trait, which is growth habit. Some plants grow very tall. Some tra- uh, some plants actually are short or they expand over the ground. And we call that prostrate okay. growth habit. And uh, so that's one trait that we study a lot. And the reason we study it is because it seems that uh, over the history of the group, the growth habit has evolved many times independently. So it seems that there are some rules at stake here. Are they they evolving convergently in different places? Correct. So if you have this Senecio plant uh, by... Stradbrook Island, let's say, and you go to the headland, Point Lookout. And then in Point Lookout, you have these rocky formations and there's this population of Senecio. All of them you will see is like they form these cushions on top of the ground. But the nearby sand dunes, they have uh, this tall uh, form. And uh, that happens the same in South Australia or in Victoria or Tasmania. So there's a reason for it, but we don't know why. Exactly. So what are the benefits of those two types of growth? Correct. So that's one of the big questions that we're trying to understand. Uh, On one hand, there is this um, large view that most plants that are by the coast tend to be short. Plants that are by the mountains tend to be taller. So there's this divide. And many people have argued that, for example, mechanical forces like wind or uh, big animals stepping on top of them that live by the coast might drive a lot of the evolution of this growth habit. But there's also something else by the coast that is not so common in the mountains, which is salt. Yes, so I think it might be a combination of them coping with the environment in which they are, which has salt and wind. So this is kind of getting at the uh, the evolutionary genesis perspective here, where it's you're not so much looking at. Are you, would you say you look so much looking at the plant as you are trying to use the plant to uncover like the underlying forces that have driven it? in these directions. Correct. So yeah. Senecio is what we mm, call a 
study system for evolutionary like a model genetics, or a, similar to a model organism, yeah. but with less resources, yeah. right? Not like uh, the fruit fly or uh, <laughs> the, the plant Arabidopsis that, I mean, has many tools and resources available to anyone in the world, right? So we're a little bit behind that. <laughs> if anyone wants to try, like, you can look up Google Arabidopsis genome. Anywhere in the world you are, you can access the full genome of the Arabidopsis Pretty plant much. and go hog yeah. wild. So we have uh, made strides to build resources. So we are currently sequencing the DNA of the entire genome of this species. Uh, we are developing what we call genetic resources. I mean, you can imagine that the, all the genetic information from these tall plants and all the genetic information from these short plants, we can shuffle them. Right, so basically we can do crosses, shuffle them, and basically make a mush out of them. And then try to ask, can nature recreate what there was there in the first place? So that's a lot of the approaches that we take. We do genetic crosses, and then with those genetic crosses, with certain a priori expectations, we take them to the field where they live, and then we try to see, okay, can these environmental conditions put together Reconstitute. Reconstitute the original form. So does that mean that um, most of your job is just making sure that your plants are still alive? After <laughs> <laughs> Actually, funny that you mentioned that. To some extent, yes, when we <laughs> study the traits, but we also care a lot uh, the way they die. <laughs> 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 yeah. But this means that, I mean, many of these plants, let's say the, the, the tall form, if you take seeds from the field and... Uh, and then you transplant them into the other environment, the different environment. I mean, we're talking about like sand dunes versus this dark soil full of nutrients and salt in the rocky headlands. When you do those transplants, I mean, the ability to survive and reproduce in each other's habitats is compromised. Yeah. So we also track <laughs> their ability to survive and therefore we actually track their deaths. I like well. it. <laughs> I suppose like one question we haven't really asked yet, which is kind of underlying a lot of this, and it seems like an easy one, but it always gets just uh, sidetracked in nuance, is what is a species? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, uh, th that's always a, a difficult question, and I think that um, um, on one hand, I always tend to partition the question in, in, in two aspects, or three aspects, actually. One is, do we consider species being real, first of all, and if they are, then we can define what there might be. Well, I would uh, I would respond like, what do you mean by real? Because like, <laughs> money is real, but it is still just like if you, if we all stop believing in it, it won't work anymore. Uh, I sort of see species in the same way, where like organisms are real, but our categorization of them as species is not inherently like objective of reality. Right. So I think that's, uh, that's pretty much the, the crux of the matter. On one hand, they are, they belong to a categorization of life, mm. right? I mean, you can have an order of organisms or a family, a genus, and then a species, etc. But on the other hand, uh, we also consider uh, organisms or these species as the unit of biodiversity. And there might be something inherently real about the processes out there in nature that naturally create these clusters of individuals that we happen to call species. Species, species is uh, very much a human-made construct. Well, of course it's a human-made construct and we like to group things into nice little boxes, but 
there's a, a lot of crossover when it comes to actual what species actually are. And that kind of needs to be acknowledged as well. Mm. Your natural reaction here on Z Digital. And we've got a special guest in the studio. He's talking to us all about ecology and genetics and plants. And evolution. And evolution. Most importantly. So really jumping back to where we were before the song came on. Uh, I suppose we probably should explain for people at home what we mean when we say species aren't... As species as a concept isn't like really like objectively... Well, Real. as far as I was concerned, like in my head, a species is someone that like two species can't breed with each other and that's what makes them a species. But there is definitely, what, like I can just think off the top of my head, like horses and donkeys, donkeys can breed and they're two different species. Uh, but their offspring is mostly sterile. But also there's um, environmental barriers that need to be considered into that scenario. So can they breed or is there an environmental barrier in that? And that's where a lot of subspecies originate from, where um, you have two very similar species they can potentially breed, but they just can't get to one another. And also it's like about what... So a lot of the sterility of organisms, like the the hybrid sterility, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, comes from mitochondrial uh, issues, in it, the males at least. It, it can, but not yeah. necessarily. Yeah. So, um, so in general, yeah, what Jacinta was saying, um, this ability of a group to reproduce within the group, but not with such other groups, uh, has been perhaps one of the most influential ideas to understand these um, natural phenomena that, and processes that are creating these distinct units that we call a species, right? Uh, so that's really, I, mm -hmm. I really enjoy that because it's language that, Daniel, uh, that uh, Professor Ortiz is using over here, because uh, it's kind of what encapsulating what we're talking about. like. The objective phenomena that you describe with species is that there are clusters of organisms that tend to be together in a, in a group in an area that that are able to reproduce within that group and may not necessarily be able to reproduce without that group. And we label this phenomena species. Right. So yeah. those groups, yeah. we, we call them a species. And um, of course, I mean, there are many other ways in which people have tried to track or to describe these groups, right? I mean, you can imagine that you might not be able to know whether elephants uh, in Asia or, uh, might be able to reproduce with other groups of elephants elsewhere or vice versa for many birds. So many people have um, stopped at just maybe characterizing these groups from a morphological point of view, the way they look like. And uh, echoing what Nadia was saying, perhaps these different morphological forms might be associated with certain environments or geographies. And then they get, they get categorized uh, in certain ways. Um, so depending on our ability to um, uh, study how organisms look like, many species ideas have emerged. But the one that relates to a specific process, this idea of reproduction, uh, is grounded on a particular biological phenomenon that we can study in many organisms. And yet, conceptually, is easy to understand in others, even if experimentally we cannot do it, right? Yeah, so um, as far as I'm aware, one of the biggest things when it comes to sterility in offspring like um, a mule mm -hmm. comes to the number of chromosomes, where the mm -hmm. chromosomes don't align and they don't match up, so they can't have those reproducible sex chromosomes that can be passed down. 
Correct. So chromosome number, if they are if they don't match between the two species, can create problems. There are many plants, for example, that are polyploid. They have doubled their number of chromosomes from say from 20 to 40. And if that plant with 40 chromosomes now reproduces with one that has 20, then the offspring most likely is going to be a sterile. Also. Uh, Yes, I mean, you see, there are problems with mitochondria, like in, in certain uh, insects, m might be responsible for uh, problems with sterility, and even in some plants, uh, it can happen. But also, we have discovered many other type of uh, processes that might include cellular um, activities per se, like from the segregation of chromosomes when a cell is dividing. The genes involved in that have sometimes been involved in creating uh, some problems or the genes involved in the um, uh, rapid uh, or the evolution of proteins that have to do with the sperm motility in certain insects or mammals. So, I mean, the, it's still a mystery whether there are yeah. categories of functions or category of processes that can consistently explain the origin of a sterility or the origin of hybrid inviability because sometimes they don't even make it yeah. to reproduce they just die beforehand and sometimes you have these interesting mixes of the two like uh, we used to talk about polyploid plants quite often polyploid polyploid plants <laughs> there we go <laughs> uh, when they have sexual gametes the gamete so the the sexual gametes so like the cells that you use to reproduce they can have different numbers of chromosomes between the cells from the same plant because like sometimes it doesn't segregate evenly when you want to double because normally what happens is you double the, uh, you split the cell in two and you've got two halves of the genetic material but it might not carve evenly so you can have some with lots of double like all triple chromosomes some with only one set that's an interesting one it's how you end up with like hexaploid wheat and that kind of thing mm -hmm. uh but i suppose one thing i want to ask you here is that idea of like that barrier between like reproduction as the barrier for new species do you find that like a persuasive uh, argument to make for like that using that as the delineation between like different species of the reproductive line or I think uh, from a um, scientific en endeavor to understand the origins of diversity I think is a, a powerful way uh, to track something that is actually happening out there we can understand how reproduction takes place, the interaction of reproduction with the ecology of the organisms, where mm. they occur, and how that affects. What would be interesting is communication between organisms. Like, for example, does an Indian elephant, is it possible that it can communicate in the same manner as an African elephant? Absolutely. And if so, are they genetically similar enough to breed? Absolutely. And will their offspring be viable? I think communication would be very interesting yeah. to understand at like an evolutionary level, but that's something that would be very absolutely a lot more abstract to study. And I think you can basically track uh, reproduction from uh, all the layers that occur from finding mates, right? Which might have to do with communication, pheromones, cues, sounds, etc. To then, after finding it, actually being able to fertilize yeah. and then after fertilizing being able for that offspring to grow healthy and then reproduce again so you can find see, barriers a, everywhere yeah see, that's an interesting thought experiment like say you had a species of bird and that from two different regions they're the same species but they're in two different regions uh but they start doing different mating rituals before they mate and they'll now that when one bird meets one another bird from a from the other side they'll say of the mountain that separates them because they'd have different rituals they can't initiate that mating structure, but they genetically they could reproduce. Does that 
because they don't reproduce, do you have a separate species or classified into a subspecies, which yeah. is probably more common? And, and I think that that um, help us go one step further, yeah. and it is that <laughs> the evolution of a trait has a consequence in reproduction. Yes. So ultimately, that's why we study traits no matter what. I mean, like we're very interested in which traits have evolved and under what con- uh, evolutionary forces and contexts. And as a consequence of that, then reproduction comes to a halt uh, between a couple of groups. Yeah, so this, this comes back to it again, where your work is really trying to get at the fundamental forces almost that are sort of driving the ge- overall trends in, popu- in a population's genetics rather than looking at a specific organism, yes. per uh, se. Yeah. Uh, there's some, maybe uh, one quick example. Uh, uh, some students of mine, uh, Federico started it, and now uh, Melanie uh, is continuing it. Uh, but uh, going back to this idea of um, the um, uh, growth habit, mm. yeah, uh, they've been finding what genes and what processes are responsible for creating a tall plant versus a short plant. And what we've been discovering is that as we learn more about those genetic and molecular mechanisms, we start to see that the same processes that control how a plant grows also affect possibly how their pollen grains actually behave. So there might be some genetic links between more than one trait. And what we think is that that linkage or relation between a trait of how organisms uh, look like and the traits that uh, control reproduction might have a common genetics. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, so they, they have, yeah, they, so they are linked. Linked is probably the best, the best way to sort of to put that. So the, the, morpho- the morphology and reproduction aren't necessarily separate. Entirely, they're not mutually Correct. exclusive. Yeah. They are not yeah, mutually, mutually exclusive. exclusive is the word we're Even for. though sometimes we tend to assume each one of them their own world, mm. but genetically they have this common ground and this common idea that says that well, possibly the same genes might be involved. I suppose it's kind of the harm of being, like, sorry, the uh, a danger of being a scientist because we try and isolate something to study it. In con- like, so when you try and isolate one particular trait so you can understand how it interacts with other things, sometimes that reductionist view where you isolate one thing can leave out all the interconnectedness. Correct. That I think that's a good tool, Yeah. but not necessarily the one that will provide the answer. Mm. So you need to use reductionist approaches to sort of eliminate confounding factors, but you cannot use them in in of themselves just to reach a grand conclusion, right? You need mm. to actually integrate the different signals that come from the different approaches and then ideally the connection between those uh, elements, in this case the traits, for example, that, that we're studying. I wanted to switch things up just a little bit. And speaking of um, different traits, what else are you working on? So you're working on flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume you're working on a lot of other different models. How do you use all these different like models to get all these different traits? And then obviously there has to be a grand picture of everything that you're sure. doing. Yeah, so there are several uh, big pictures that we try to address. One of them, you can think of like how easy is it for evolution to come up with a particular solution to an environmental challenge. Right, so uh, easy mentioned before this idea of convergent evolution. Right, so different organisms come up with the same solution when confronted with the same environmental challenge. So there are examples, uh, uh, for example, 
in birds, uh, the pigments sometimes that give rise to the colors of the feathers, or uh, in mice, the pigments that give rise to the color of the, their coat, and even our own skin. Uh, maybe the same genes are being recruited to provide those pigments. That can be ex then extrapolated to other more complex traits, like the evolution of flower color. We know that many of the colors in many different plants of, in their flowers are using the same set of genes and the variation in those. We think that for this type of uh, growth habit, the same is happening. So we have uh, in plants, uh, they have these fascinating hormones that control how they branch, when they flower, whether they, uh, the root is actually thin and uh, goes everywhere, or it's just a tap root that just digs down deeply several meters. So these hormones are controlled by a um, set of genes, and these genes basically take the hormone, put it in a particular node of uh, the plant, or take it next to the branches, or just take it to the roots. Well, we think that uh, that ability to move hormones around has evolved convergently or in, in similar ways in different populations of Senecio. So there might be some constraints as to in how many ways you're able to solve, let's say, becoming a tall plant. So the pieces of the puzzle are there, but the puzzle is finite. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> everyone has been given the same pieces and some of them do it slightly different than other populations. Um, what I was going to ask, actually, that goes really well into the question I had, um, and how much we actually know about, like, how many answers do we have about this? Like, that's a huge question, I know, but is it something that, um, like, for these kind of speciation things, when we go, okay, here's what we know, here's how the traits are selected, do we actually understand how this works? Is it a field that that we have most of the answers, or is it one where we're still, you know, grasping at straws and going, I really don't know? Right, okay, so... I would say that it's like a, a mixture of things. It's, um, well, Darwin already provided a solution to the origin of the species by, the, by means of natural selection, right? Yeah. So Take that, Lamarck. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Take that so, one off. So yeah. we start with already with an answer, right? But, um, of course, the tools and concepts of the time uh, did not include anything like genetics that well, we have today. We sort of had an idea of... The answer, like the answer to that question, but like the mechanism by which that occurs is something like we're still very much grappling with. Absolutely, and I think that um, I would say at the moment there are many more unanswered questions than answer questions. Mm. And what we know about the speciation, the origin of the species, I mean, we've learned a lot about it, and we have like a basic backbone as to how diversity originates on Earth. But the diversity per se. <laughs> of life mm. suggests that we just have scrapped the surface because the number of systems in which we have actually studied the speciation is so small that our confidence on whether there are generalities or rules about how speciation occurs is still very uh, feeble. I would say maybe there are a couple of rules. I mean, let's say there's one very famous one known as Haldane's rule. And that says, and you already brought it up with um, the mules, that when you have two species that have sex chromosomes, that means, for example, like in humans, uh, females have two X chromosomes and males have an X and a Y. Well, there are many organisms like that, of course. Uh, and when you do a cross between two species that have sex chromosomes and you look at the offspring, the hybrid offspring, 
often, more than not, the males are the ones that are sterile, not the females. And that has been seen over and over and over, right? So it seems to be a general phenomena that occurs across all the tree of life. So I think that uh, to wrap up this segment. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we'll come back and talk more, but we do yeah. need to play a song at some point. Sure. <laughs> uh, I would say that, again, there seems to be some few rules. We still don't know the details of how they come about, but yeah, I think we're in an exciting time in which there are many more unanswered questions than yeah. those that have been answered. That is a really great answer to yes. a kind of crap question. So <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you doing Come that on. one. Your natural reaction here on Z Digital, and we're chatting to our scientist in the studio, Professor Daniel Ortiz Barrientos, who has been incredible, telling us all about genetics and speciation and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think before I uh, not even sorry. Were you, I think oh, I just wanted to build on what we were talking about um, on the break before the break. And that was um, how we don't really know what's happening in terms of the actual mechanisms uh, and how new information is just coming out all the time. I mean, when you think about Lamarck's theory that he originally proposed and how... For people at home, Lamarck uh, posited a a, uh, opposing form of evolution to Charles Darwin's origin of species. Okay, I was going to say, because I don't know who that was, so people at home and me. (laughs) He he had a proposed model evolution, which is use and disuse, like, so giraffes would... Oh, the long necks. Yeah, try and eat tall things, and therefore their necks would get longer. Yeah, so the the more they stretched... um, Yeah, weightlifters having weightlifter kids. Yeah, exactly, where obviously that is not entirely correct, but as we discover more and more things about the natural world... And as we uncover things like epigenetics, we realize that there's so many more layers to just, um, you know, natural selection. And, well, this environmental force impacts it exactly like this. There's so much more that we don't know. And I love the fact that Lamarckian theory on inherited traits is actually somewhat correct when you think of an epigenetic scale. So you have your genome and then you have your epigenome, which is a layer above that. And what you do throughout life can be passed on to your offspring. Right, so I think that um, several issues there, but um, yeah. perhaps the, the first one that comes to, uh, to mind is that um, these epigenetic marks or these modifications that we do to the genetic material that is not necessarily uh, changing the actual code of the DNA, the letters of the DNA, but actually adding, uh, have some add-ons to it, m- m- are often like these little chemical groups called methyl groups. And um, they can control, of course, different way genes are switched on, switched mm, off, etc. And certainly uh, some of those marks can be stable over a few generations, right? And I think that's basically what, for the most part, we acknowledge can happen. But when you think a little bit about what controls where those marks go, So maybe you think about like there's a room and there's a switch for the light and the room gets painted with some fluorescent uh, marker. When you switch on the light, then the fluorescence pops up or uh, dies off, etc. That might be the epigenetic marker, right? But then what gets inherited is the switch. Mm. (laughs) And then uh, the switch is still genetically controlled and the switch is still going to be a little bit variable over the generations, and that can persist for hundreds and thousands of generations. But the marker can wait off or can be uh, 
change for a different color, etc. So the question as to whether those paintings on the wall, sort of speak, uh, can affect the trajectory of evolution, I think still is remains unclear. Still remains unclear. Yeah, but yeah. it's. T I mean, they're there yeah. for sure, but uh, uh, it, their impact in long-term evolution remains unclear. Oh, of course, and we don't really. Sorry, Izzy, um, yeah, but sorry. we we haven't really been looking at epigenetics for long enough to really know mm. how things have changed Indeed. over generations. Yeah. I don't think we'd ever really be able to tell um, well, with we, our current model systems. We need Possibly. huge, broad-scale efforts to like get multi-generational data to mm. do it. I think I'm trying to point out that the resurgence or no actually the arisal of studies of epigenetics i mean they of course evoke perhaps some lamarckian thoughts but doesn't suggest that no, oh no, lamarckian evolution yeah, actually takes correct. place what, yeah, I, yeah. What, I would, what i would say about lamarckian thought is that uh epigenetics and that because lamarck was actually trying to describe a system of evolution with the same thing that uh darwin did but epigenetics does not uh make any sort of comment on how these traits are acquired like it's Show, it shows that there's a control over their regulation and expression, but not the acquisition. Sure. So like, I think that sort of doesn't quite work as an evolutionary model because you need to show how you actually pick up the DNA that makes the trait. And the mark, this, like, that doesn't fit here, I don't think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but, but interesting, you're right, definitely about it does evoke all those Lamarckian feelings. Whereas, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, the the theory of evolution as we have it right now yeah. it's enough to explain uh, well how things uh, are working right now in terms of like how diversity originates but of course i mean as scientists we always need to keep uh, our mind open if, if we get refuted in the future with that well we'll just change <laughs> our views but uh so far the model is robust uh, to yeah, incorporate in epigenetics without the need to creating a, a new way of looking at evolution what a good way about to think about science, hey? Like that's the that's why science is so amazing. It's like, oh well, look, if the evidence comes back and it's wrong, I guess we have to change. But uh, until then, we're all good. Until we go, until then we go to carry on. Sure. So one thing that we always ask our guests, um, and we've had some really varied responses for everyone being a scientist, um, but. One of the things that I, we usually ask what you do in your day-to-day -day life, but obviously I saw on your website how many amazing photos of uh, <laughs> all the different places that you go is. So feel free to tell me about that or tell me about like what you do normally, which I'm hoping is not going out to amazing places because then I'm very, <laughs> very jealous. Right. I guess um, I would call our style of work seasonal. So we have field seasons, wet lab and the molecular lab seasons, uh, computer-based seasons. So my students uh, can spend maybe three to five months going to the coast and to the sand dunes and the rocky headlands and on an island or uh, along the coast. So Where yes. do I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> so that can happen. Uh, and it's, it's hard work. I mean, like uh, the students are tracking individual seeds, uh, uh, oh, yeah, okay. which can be in the thousands, right? <laughs> so, uh, and tracking them, uh, how they're growing, when they die. So it's hard work, but uh, yeah, wonderful place to work, certainly, and gets them the opportunity to understand the environment in which these plants or the organism of study is uh, growing and living. But then on, we also have uh, seasons in which 
okay, every day into the lab, you know, and uh, the notebook comes out and the pipettes come out and <laughs> the tips and then the long experiments and the long hours and there are season, uh, a uh, period of, of the year in which that can happen or a period of the PhD. And then there is the analysis uh, part. So then you have um, bioinformatics, writing code, doing a statistical analysis, and the writing, of course, of papers. So my students, uh, for the most part, most of them do the three. And some of them emphasize one aspect more than other, but in my life I try to uh, give them that type of uh, mixed experience. And um, uh, of course, uh, I, I feel that uh, the PhD or a, a postdoc time is the time in which you have the most freedom to truly spend as much time as you can doing this type of uh, direct uh, activities on the experiments, right? Then as you progress on, on your academic career, things change a little bit more. I mean, uh, our academic job in includes, uh, of course, teaching in addition to research. And we participate in uh, making the university better by uh, driving initiatives in the university. So it's a, a very mixed uh, bag of activities. And uh, uh, hopefully we learn over time how to manage our time so we are effective at the different activities. While at the same time, of course, enjoying our personal life. Like I have three kids, for example, that I love and my wife. And uh, uh, finding that balance in which uh, um, the kids and and the family as a whole uh, can move forward uh, in a nice way while not compromising the job and vice versa. That's perhaps um, one of the daily challenges, <laughs> of course. Well, actually, one of the reasons why it took you a little bit of time to get in here is because of grant season. So mm -hmm. obviously that's a whole other part of Oh, job. absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that other season, I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's certainly very intense and it has these hard deadlines. And but it's a very um, creative aspect of science. I mean, because science, for the most part, has a big fraction of it that is just purely creative. Like when you write your ideas, when you write the papers, when you come up with a new experimental design, and then of course the rigorous and the logical aspect of it. Once you uh, need to check uh, the self-consistency of your ideas for your experiments, but then also the protocols that you follow and uh, sometimes the tedious nature of acquiring data, right? So it's a, it's a very interesting mixture of activities. And, uh, but the creative phase of it, I, I certainly love it very much. Mm -hmm. And the grant season, despite how hard it is to <laughs> write these grants, is wonderful because you have this period of the year in which you're pretty much imagining how the world works. And, uh, and I find that actually quite soothing. What and a great uh, way to look at it. Like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's probably the, the most unique way I've heard of grants. Yes, <laughs> this is the only positive take I've ever heard of grants. <laughs> yeah. Everyone else I know within grants seasons like becomes these haggard ghosts that sort of haunt well, around. I might become also that. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, I'm not immune to that in, in any way, but it's certainly uh, a very interesting phase and also organizes many of the thoughts that uh, the entire life is producing. So it's a good time to reflect upon all the connections about all the results that uh, are coming from the lab. Because, I mean, even though we have lab meetings just to... Uh, acquaint everyone with everyone is finding and the students talk to one another. It's difficult to catch up for every single student on everything. So mm -hmm. I need to help with providing that umbrella on top of the knowledge that we're producing so I can uh, facilitate certain uh, trajectories of research more efficiently than if I am actually just focusing on one single aspect of the research. Mm -hmm. So that I also find quite um, 
energizing, just uh, trying mm. to cope up with the synthesis uh, of everything that we're discovering. Mm, definitely. Uh, what would you say is like the most common problem you run into in your lab? In what do you mean? Like, uh, I'm trying <laughs> to think in your in your research problem, in your research process. Uh -huh. What is the most common issue that you find yourself faced with? Mm. Well, I mean, research is solving problems, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah so <laughs> really Izzy's just frustrated that he can't get his uh, PCR to work. No, I got my, I got my PCR to work. <laughs> right. Now. I think that. I mean, I, I think. I mean, it sounds a little bit. I don't know. Different, but time management. Time management. Yeah. I would say is the quintessential aspect that I can help or delay, retard. I mean, like many of the aspects. Of, of research because I mean sometimes uh, you might be really good technically about something and then you should be encouraged to do that a lot and then you might not be so trained yet in doing some aspects that you most require so then you need to be encouraged to do it as well <laughs> yes. of course but uh, I mean we all expect that uh, uh, we're all reading we're all thinking about how to do things we become good at designing experiments and transforming uh, our mathematical models in nice uh, verbal predictions that we can communicate to others, etc. So all of that is, is challenging all the time for yep. everyone. And standardizing your experiments, as you know, it takes time, <laughs> so it can be frustrating. <laughs> but success across all of those, uh, I, I feel, gets enhanced if uh, people tend to manage their time better. And what, what I tend to, to say to my students is that uh, when you do a timeline, it's, your, it's not your research timeline, it's your life timeline. Because, yeah. I mean, you cannot ignore that you're coming here on a Saturday, and you cannot ignore that you also perhaps play the violin, <laughs> and you cannot ignore that you might have already kids or whatever, right? So yeah. I think that I like to have integrative timelines, and that not only is about the research experiments and things like that, because you're going to underestimate how long it's going to take, first of all. And second, once you realize that it's taking longer than you expected, then that is going to trickle down in the, rest, in the aspects of your life, and then it's going to make it very stressed. So I think that uh, it's best to integrate your life, uh, both personal and academic, in the way you manage your time. And the more aware you are of their interaction, the better outcomes tend to occur. So that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges. I love the theme of this interview has been that you're such a big picture person. That's uh, <laughs> basically it. It's very, I was going to say, it's a very great way to end off, I think. It's very, it's very uh, refreshing. Yeah. Very, ho very holistic <laughs> view of, uh, of like, a, well, work and life, basically. Your natural reaction here on Zed Digital and Izzy. Yes. Tell me about things. Okay, we're going straight through. We don't have much time and I want to cover some ground. So, a new paper at a UCLA uh, published uh, just about the 20th of March, uh, so 20th last month. Uh, it's titled Multi-Generational Memory and Adaptive Adhesion in Early bacteria, Bacterial Biofilm Communities. So let's break that down a little bit off the bat. Uh, first of all, I want to talk about what a biofilm is. So a biofilm is basically... It's a film of bacteria. Yeah. Well, but microbes in general doesn't necessarily have to be bacteria, but uh, most ones we encounter are. It can also be algae. Okay, algae, and they can be combinations of different kinds of uh, microbes altogether in one, uh, and they attach to us to each other and, and a surface. And this sort of film formation confers a whole lot of advantages to them in many ways. So uh, for one, one of the biggest advantages that we talk about a lot for humans is that 
they are quite resistant to antibiotics and other sort of chemicals and medications that you want to use. Because of the layers. Yeah. Mostly it's mostly a function of the layers. There's other whole lot of different things because biofilms are very, very complex communities. They seem to have intracellular... Like, they commu- the individual cells that make it up seem to be able to communicate to each other. Is that through quorum sensing? Yes, and like this is all very fascinating stuff because it sort of builds on the idea. Like, on is it one whole? Is that whole thing sort of one organism in many ways? Like, um, like superorganisms, like a lot of jellyfish, appear to be one animal to us, but are actually different kinds of. On a microscopic level, they're different kinds of things stitched that are all together. That. Jellyfish are different animals. The bo- blue bottle, for instance, is a colonial organism. the The bottle that the blue bottle at the top that floats is different to the part that makes the tentacles, which are different to the the part that reproduces the whole blue bottle organism. That's insane. Yeah, it's a super, it's a colony of different organi- of different microscopic organisms that form this jellyfish structure that we call a jellyfish. So if you ever get, we call a blue uh, bottle. if you ever get attacked by a blue bottle, you can thank the colony, not the individual. Yeah. Not no no single one of them was guilty. <laughs> <laughs> It was a group effort. <laughs> it was a group effort. Uh, or if you want to think of it like lichen. Lichen are a combination of uh, fungi and algae. No, no. Lichen, I'm screwing this up. No, maybe bacteria and algae. Someone can come and yell at me for getting that wrong. And they form a superorganism out of the two smaller ones. Algae and cyanobacteria. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so there's a photosynthetic component and then there is a uh, sort of more microbial component. But... So we can tell you that, that these biofilms confer a whole lot of advantages to them. And in general, microbes have sort of two forms. There are the sessile, what we call sessile forms, that don't move very much, that form these biofilms. Or occasionally, you know, you see clumps of bacteria or like or clumps of just goop in a uh, in solution. If those of you who work in labs, of course, have seen this when you do L- make LB broth and that kind of thing. You have, colon- you have like sort of general... There's all bacteria through the solution, but there's also sometimes the clumping bits that come together. Those are those sessile, what we call sessile aggregates. And you have what we call planktonic. So they're like plankton. They're just sort of individual cells that float around. Yeah. And uh, when it comes to like bacterial infections in people for medicine, the acute acute infections, the one that hits you quickly and are more likely to cause serious damage and kill you quickly, are mostly planktonic. They're floating around. They're doing things. While the chronic ones that hang around for a long time and cause issues over a big period of time are mostly biofilms because it's hard to get rid of them. We don't really can't really get in there and break them down very well. So these are biofilms in particular cause a lot of issues around things like hip replacements. Um, there'll be like a slight bit of infection on there and then it'll, call, it'll form a biofilm while the hip is inside you and then you have a biofilm. Uh, that's causing a whole bunch of issues on the hip replacement. Occasionally, you get them in your throat. Uh, pneumonia can do this kind of thing. Sounds nasty. Yeah, so like, mm. chronic infections tend to be biofilms because they're hard to sort of break down and get at. What we don't, what we haven't really known though, is what cause, like what sort of mechanisms behind the formation of these biofilms. We know biofilms have been around for a long time. We know, we've known about biofilms for a long time, but we haven't really sort of figured out why some of these same bacteria are planktonic and why some of them are like to form these films. I mean, they found a hack. Why would you not be like... <laughs> yeah. Like, it seems OP as hell. No, like, it, it's great. But I mean, like, what the actual, like, what biological processes are involved... Like how it happens. Yeah, because, like, these two forms of bacteria and they see... Well, two forms of the same species. Yeah. And we sort of didn't really know why that's how it is. But we this paper here proposes something of a method of a mechanism at least in its model organism pseudomonas 
aeruginosa, which is a, a bacteria, bacterial cell. And what they found is there are two kinds of these two kinds of cells, the planktonic and the sessile, or in this in this case, their nomenclature it's a surface sentient, which are for the the ones that can detect a surface and sort of know it's there, and uh, surface ignorant, uh, so ones that sort of float around and don't really get on there. Uh, what they found is when you flow a plankton, like a plank, you you harvest some planktonic bacteria and you flow it across a cell, uh, across a surface, around about 90-95% of them plus, well 95 plus percent of them will detach with under 30 seconds. They'll hit the surface and they'll fall off in under 30 seconds. Uh, now it takes about an hour for a cell to divide. So you can tell like, okay, it only hangs on there for 30 seconds. That's not much time for it to divide and actually start forming a film. So how, like, what is the mechanism by which that goes under? Uh, they found that if you take cells that have actually been on the film and then you flow them back across, uh, this has changed. This is slightly different. So normally it takes around 20 hours for virgin cells, new cells that have never been on the surface, to establish a biofilm. And once a biofilm starts being established, it grows very quickly. It heads like... For those of you who work with bacteria, there are bacter- there are exponential growth phases for bacteria, and that hits them very quickly. Uh, sorry, it hits them at around 20 hours. Uh, in cells that have already been sensitized to a surface and then are reapplied, it takes about 17 and a half for them to for them to get on them. And now so slightly less time. Slightly less time. So this is an interesting. Okay, we see something's going on here. Uh, but these are the same bacteria. Yes. Uh, so they see something's going on here. So they used a uh, cyclic ampicillin reporter plasmid. So we know that cyclic ampicillin is a really important signaling molecule in a lot of organisms, but it's been implicated in biofilm formation in previous work. So they knew that there's something going on with cyclic ampicillin, so they were looking into it. Uh, and what they found is there's a pattern of... what they. Co- I'm going to read the direct quote out for you so you can have an idea of the the, t- the kind of nomenclature uh, being used. It's a damped out-of-phase uh, oscillation of psychic ampicillin and type 5 PLA, an associated type 5 PLA activity. <laughs> uh, so what I'm trying to break that down a little bit for you is uh, basically there's a, a cycle of ampicillin, that, ampicillin production that has like a very small peak and then it comes down and then out-of-phase with that, so after a bit of a lag... There's some activity in this type of pile called type 5 pile, which pile are the tiny little hairs on the outside of microbes and bacteria that they use to move around. Uh, so there's an activity. So you have cyclic production, small amount, and then small amount of acti- of TP of uh, this pile activity, and then ampicillin, and then TP, then this the pile activity, and so on and so forth. They actually had to use uh, an approach that you use for music to get to find pitch frequencies that are very low in order to detect this. But what does that mean, though? What's the... Does that mean that they're more likely to attach if they've got that? Yeah, no. So this pattern is what occurs in the ones that attach, and they basically... the yeah, All their pile activity, the type 5 pile, start slowing down, they start stopping, and they don't move as much, and they're not motile at all. So they started attached to a surface, and they stopped moving. And that you can see how that's implicated in forming a film. So for the naive cells they take longer to set up that cycle than the ones that already well, were present in a biofilm? Yes. Yeah, so, But the, the important thing is that when you start hitting this 
uh, this cycle, this persists for generations. Once it divides, uh, you can see this cycle continuing in the descendant cells. So it persists through generations of the thing. So that's where you can see how that's when an exponential growth can start happening on a surface. Uh, the other thing that it's associated with is there are three in biofilm sort of like bacteria growing on a biofilm there are sort of three level three ways you can reproduce they call them one-legged two-legged and no-legged so one-legged is where the cell divides and one into two cells and one of those cells remains attached to the surface of the biofilm and the other one detaches and becomes planktonic again uh, then there's two-legged where both of them stay attached to the surface and the no-legged where both of them fall off what we see is that you see an increase in the family architect, the complexity of the family architecture of bacteria on the biofilm, and it's a uh, much more two-legged cell division. They tracked individual cells and all their descendants, how they split. So this is incredibly tedious effort work, but incredible. So it's also implicated in an entirely different way of reproducing for these bacteria. They start uh, preferentially uh, dividing to remain on the biofilm yeah and we can see how that sticks to the surface but to further to Daniel's point really quickly talking about variability is that if you take the if you harvest cells off that biofilm and then grow them for generations in like planktonic environments where they're just single cells eventually they'll be this will be erased they won't have that pattern anymore and they'll go back to essentially being uh, naive cells and oh, sorry, when I say naive cells in a population, all populations of the bacteria will have some amount of them that have varying levels of sensitivity to a surface. This allows for what Daniel's talking about, but that variability that makes you, that is so important for a species to survive is that they're not all one thing. They're all varying levels of ability to attach, ability to stay floating, ability to do everything. It's just really interesting. Yeah, so it's it's memory basically. Yeah, it's like but it's, it's passing a, they're passing it down to their little babies and going, "Here's have enjoy, go do things." Become a film be better. the memory onto their clonal cells. Becoming a biofilm that's like really hard oh. to disrupt. So I'm guessing like this biofilm, once a biofilm's been established, it is easier and will establish a lot quicker quicker over the subsequent generations. Yeah, once it's once it's established, there's like an exponential growth phase where it spreads Does really Does it go quickly. down after that 17 hours or is it always 17 hours? Sorry. Is it always seventeen hours, or does it get does it get shorter? Uh, for the that attachment sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, if you're flowing new cells, they found it's around about because it, of course this is an average. It's about seventeen and a half hours. Oh, I just figured that if the first one was twenty, the next one was seventeen. Maybe like the more generations that do it, you might end up getting uh, less I, and less. I think there'd be a flaw in that because again, a lot of it's about that two-legged reproduction and like the stopping of movement. So there's only so much that you can do there because like you know there is a. It takes time for a cell to divide. To oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. It's still going to do its thing. Now, we've got a little bit of a, a thing to finish off with. Yes. We're going to be talking, listening to some whale sounds. We will. So, a new study that was just published um, is basically the largest set of recordings for bowhead whales. They are um, a similar species to humpback whales. Well, they are within the same family, but they're different. So, bowhead whales live exclusively in the Arctic. And they have very complex vocalizations. And these are really interesting because unlike humpback whales, which basically add to their repertoire of songs each year, these bow-headed whales never repeat the same songs between years. That's cool. So they have such a diverse range of songs. And the um, basically the, the lead author, Kate Stafford, said, if humpback whale songs are like classical music, bowheads are like jazz. So they're a lot more, the sound is a lot more freeform. 
And basically, they looked at acoustic data over four years. So they took these recordings like nonstop using hydrophones, which are water like microphones that you can um, listen to uh, sounds through water. Yeah. And basically, they found that these whales were singing so many different types of songs. It's like the musicians of, uh, I, li- I like that, jazz musicians of the sea. Yeah. Um, so. Are they genre snobs? Do they don't like it? <laughs> I mean, they probably don't like sing the humpback whale songs, so yeah. maybe they are. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously studies like this is important because for marine mammals, acoustics is basically how they do literally everything. I mean, humans are mostly visual, but for marine mammals, they live in this three-dimensional space, this habitat that heavily requires on acoustics. And they think that obviously this, these differences in um, and variation in song is obviously to do with um, how they find mates and the behavior surrounding that. Um, very, very cool. And I wanted to play some of the whale sounds. So we'll finish up the show and then we'll play that to end us off. Yes. So um, we don't really have time to talk about what we talked about today, but Daniel, thank you again for coming in. Uh, it's been wonderful to be here. Thank you. Good to hear you. Stayed for the whole two hours as well. You know, it's always good having someone in for so long. It's great. been great chatting. Yeah. Thank you. Always good chatting. Izzy, Nadia, Hello. thank you. See you guys. Also, uh, for anyone who wants to, you can actually listen to Listen for Whales on hydrophones around the world. Some people, some research institutions give like access online if you ever want to listen live to whatever the ocean's doing. I mean, that sounds pretty fabulous. Listen.orcasound.net is, is an option. What a way to go to sleep. Yeah. Um, so, your natural reaction. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We appreciate you all being here. You Again, you're always welcome to listen to us on the podcast, on the um, 4ZZ website, or on your digital radio. Thanks, everyone. Your natural reaction. And enjoy these amazing whale sounds. Soothing whale sounds. Bye.